Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the love of Jesus to change people's lives. We just celebrated Easter weekend and we celebrated and focused a lot as we should on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection, of course, is the central tenet of Christianity. It's the thing that really makes Christianity what it is. But we also need to remember that Jesus calls us to live a certain way. Um, We trust Jesus. We deeply trust Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. And because we deeply trust Jesus, we should also deeply trust Jesus about what it means to be human. You know, we need to view Jesus as having the authority to tell us how to live, how to be human, how not to live, how not to be a human. So, uh, Jesus, throughout his ministry, calls us to unity with each other. He calls us to love one another. You know, when a teacher of the law or an expert in the law asks Jesus, which is the greatest commandment, Jesus quotes uh, the Shema, the Jewish daily prayer that was uh, quoting Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. And then Jesus added in a second commandment. He said the second commandment is like the first. And at this point, the the expert in the law and pretty much everyone listening would probably be thinking, wait, wait a minute. He just asked for the greatest commandment. And Jesus tries to give him two. Uh, He says, you know, the greatest commandment is love God. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So... The interesting thing there is that Jesus doesn't seem to distinguish between loving God and loving others. We love God by loving others. By loving others, we love God. So if that's all true, then the United Methodist Church is engaged in a very necessary but often neglected effort to address systemic racism. So I want to share uh, some of the report from the Missouri General Conference of the Methodist Church about systemic racism um, and about um, the congregation or the convention's um, desire to do something about it. Um, And then I want to get into a book I just recently read called Reading While Black by Esau McCauley. Um, This book was a big deal. It really got a lot of attention um, last year in 2021 um, in the wake of the George Floyd protests, in the wake of, you know, much more awareness of racism and its continuing effects in American society. And, uh, but I just recently got the book as a Kindle edition and read it. um, And it is a truly remarkable work. Um, So I think the reason why the book got so much attention, having read it, is that it provides a theological argument and a scripturally based argument for why, based on our faith, based on our Bibles, we should care about and address issues of systemic racism. So uh, to start with, if you go to uh, the website mothodist.org, so that's Um, you 
can find a lot of different resources provided by the Missouri Conference of the United Methodist Church. Um, if you add to that into that website backslash race and culture, um, you will find um, a page that's specific to the current efforts in the Missouri Conference of the United Methodist Church to survey members of the Missouri Methodist Church about their attitudes and beliefs about systemic racism and what the church can or should do about it, if anything, um, and their efforts to then work toward uh, equipping congregations, equipping members of the Methodist Church to take some kind of action to try to seek social justice or to try to seek, in biblical terms, um, right relationship with others. When the Bible talks about justice, that word can be synonymous with righteousness, and it's almost always talking about justice or righteousness in the context of right relationships with other people. So the Bible itself expresses a strong concern for social justice, or what we would call social justice, or right relationships with other people, among people, including the institutions and organizations and systems in which people are interacting and relating to each other in society. So to start with, um, last year, the Missouri Conference of the United Methodist Church uh, put out a survey and they were hoping to get 400 respondents um, and they got 2,541 respondents. So they had a huge response compared to what they were hoping to get. Um, and this survey included um, you know, people who were clergy as well as lay people. Um, it was mostly older people, but some younger people did complete the survey. It was mostly white. Um, but some minorities did take the survey, and it was more female than male. It was about 55% female to 45% male. Um, so there you know, wasn't necessarily a perfect representative sample for the United Methodist Conference as a whole, um, except it kind of is because <laughs> the United Methodist Church in Missouri happens to be, fit those same parameters. It's mostly... Uh, older people, uh, mostly, you know, 45 and up. It's mostly a female or more female than male and mostly white. Um, so this is a pretty thorough, pretty representative survey of the United Methodist Conference, even if it doesn't necessarily track with society at large. Okay, so in this survey, um, about 85% of the total respondents said it was very important to them as individuals to dismantle racism or systemic racism. Um, about the same number said it was very important to them uh, or important to them that the conference, the Missouri Methodist Church, try to dismantle racism. Um, there was a little bit of a gap here. About 65% of respondents aged 18 to 35 said this was very important, while only 57% of 55 and older said it was very important. Similarly, about 89% of African-American respondents said dismantling racism was very important, while only about 57% of white respondents agreed. So there is a substantial gap uh, between younger respondents and people of color who responded versus older 
uh, respondents and white respondents. Nonetheless, overall, and even within those uh, older, whiter groups, there's a strong support for dismantling racism, both on an individual level, you know, doing what you can as an individual, and in a systemic level, or doing what the Conference or Missouri Methodist Church as a whole can do. And again, over 85%, almost 90% of the respondents connected uh, dismantling racism to discipleship. Um, and there were, you know, was the quantitative data where people you know, clicked as this you know, highly, you know, very important, just important, somewhat important, etc. But then there was also a qualitative response where people would write in uh, their thoughts. And so there were comments like, as a Christian, I think it is our mandate to teach the world to love unconditionally. One of the most heartening themes in the survey data was that uh, when people were asked to describe anti-racism, they often described it in terms of actively working toward it. Um, so they wrote things that implied work or actively working against racism or opposing racism rather than just passively including people of other races or ethnicities. Um, and so differences you know, were pretty narrow. There wasn't a lot of uh, difference across groups in terms of you know, how they described what they think of as anti-racism. And again, the, by a large margin, the respondents in the survey described anti-racism as some kind of activity, some kind of action to take so respondents were also asked, uh, what is a barrier to anti-racism? And over half of people, um, right about 60%, I think, actually said denial that racism is a problem or anti-racism viewed as a political agenda. I would say those are two sides of the same coin at this point in 2022, um, because many people deny racism as a problem. There's a lot of overlap in that denial and viewing anti-racism as quote-unquote CRT or critical race theory, um, meaning that there's a political agenda. And if it can be politicized, it can also be delegitimized. You're not really concerned about loving our, your neighbor as yourself. You just have a political agenda. Um, and that, that could be expressed in a hundred different ways, but that's one example, I think, of how um, we, people could deny racism as a problem by describing anti-racism as a political agenda rather than a scriptural mandate, a theological mandate, or just a moral ethical imperative. And indeed, uh, one of the main takeaways from the comments people left in the survey was that although a minority, some negative comments about this idea of dismantling racism were rather disturbing. Um, some commenters questioned the very existence of persistent racism, especially structural or systemic racism. Um, and while race, racism, implicit bias, and justice were relatively comfortable topics for all respondents, um, white privilege and white supremacy were much less comfortable for many respondents. And among some groups in particular, they were uh, very uncomfortable topics. And many of those comments indicate or demonstrate strong misunderstandings of white privilege and white supremacy as described in diversity, equity, and inclusion scholarship and training and work. 
um, you know, you hear that term white supremacy and you immediately think of the Ku Klux Klan or, but that's not what modern contemporary people working in diversity, equity, and inclusion mean by the phrase white supremacy. They mean that how white culture is presumed to be normal or normative. Um, and so if things deviate from the norm, then it gets labeled. And so many of the comments demonstrated that they didn't really understand those specialized terms, white privilege and white supremacy. Um, and they often mention critical race theory, um, but they don't really seem to understand critical race theory based on their comments. So this is an example where for some people, they deny racism as a problem. Um, by viewing anti-racism as this political agenda as quote-unquote CRT or critical race theory, um, but they don't really fully understand what CRT is and isn't, um, and they don't necessarily understand some of the terms that people use. Uh, defund the police is a great example. You know, you hear that phrase and it just sounds insane <laughs> and it sounds radical, and then you listen to an explanation of what activists mean by it, and you think, oh, you know, I could get behind, you know, keeping the police budget flat for a few years so we could invest more money into um, social services and mental health care services, trying to reduce, you know, some of the uh, inequities and some of the poverty and some of the things that contribute to crime and the need for police in the first place. Um, I, I could get behind, you know, not continuing to cut those budgets year after year and instead maybe return some funding back to those institutions uh, to try to improve people's lives so that they have opportunity besides, you know, turning to crime just to try to survive. Um, you know, I could get behind that. Uh, but defund the police? Absolutely not. <laughs> right. And so that's an example where um, activists who have been working in anti-racist work or diversity, equity, and inclusion training and writing and what have you for decades have a very specific meaning by this term or phrase. You know, they say this term or phrase and it carries paragraphs, if not pages of meaning and context for them. But then when they use those phrases with the rest of us who don't have that same background knowledge and context, it sounds very different from what they by it. So the report identifies both opportunities and challenges for Missouri Methodists. The opportunity is that, you know, out of 2,500 people, over 1,600 of them left comments, written comments describing anti-racism. And the vast majority of those people who left those comments described it as an active process as some kind of action people take as individuals or churches take as organizations to work toward dismantling racism and improving equity. Um, the challenge is that about 8% of those same, you know, 8% of that 1600 group who wrote comments expressed a lot of resistance um, including anger and frustration about the prominence of racism as a social issue. Um, many of those 8% of the 1,600, you know, tried to dispute whether racism exists in America in, in 2022 uh, or 2021. And they saw anti-racism work as just a waste of time and money. 
Um, and according to the report, some of those comments even used language that could be described as overly racist and disturbing. Um, overtly racist, rather, not overly, but overtly racist and disturbing. Um, and then, you know, similarly, one opportunity is a lot of people recognize that there are barriers to anti-racist work, and mainly that people tend to deny that racism is a problem. The challenge, though, is that there are those people who deny it's a problem. Um, so, the report for the Missouri United Methodist Conference recommends three action steps going forward. One, education and training. So trying to educate people in the Methodist Church about current and historical racism in the United States, disparities in local church life for people of color, um, and general awareness of diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. Um, they second recommend um, relationship building by planting and supporting multi-ethnic churches, um, bringing local churches together for shared worship, mission and fellowship, involving youth in anti-racism efforts, and then third, prof prophetic leadership. And so in the Bible, prophets don't really tell the future. They speak to current situations and circumstances. Um, you know, so the prophet uh, Jeremiah is not telling a future about something that will happen one day. He is saying to the current political and religious structures of the day, this is what God thinks about you. <laughs> you know, this is, I'm speaking on behalf of God, telling you where you're getting things wrong and mucking it up and what you should do instead. So prophetic leadership um, would bring more people of color into the conference leadership. It would challenge lay people to connect with anti-racism uh, resources and to connect anti-racism with discipleship. And it would also encourage creating new policies to support anti-racism. So this leadership would be prophetic in the sense that it would be addressing current situations and, and you know, speaking truth to power and trying to say, you know, things are this way, but they should be that way. Let's work toward making them that way instead. The Missouri Methodist.org website, MOUMethodist.org backslash race and culture, that website uh, lists the report that you can click on and read. It lists several other resources that you can take advantage of. Um, but on their main page, they um, say, we want to become a brave, empowering place for people from diverse cultures and generations so that we can become a church for all God's people. We seek to do this by equipping conference leaders and local churches for multicultural leadership, cross-cultural connection, and healing justice. So based on the report, um, they suggest you know three changes that, that we need to make. Cultivate welcoming environments at the Missouri Conference, Methodist Conference level, but also in congregational levels or in your local churches. Cultivate welcoming environments by providing training and cultural awareness and resources for conference staff and local congregations. Uh, facilitate courageous conversations regarding the dismantling of racist theologies and practices within our midst. And third, initiate and activate change in policies, practices, networking, and recruiting strategies to allow for greater ethnic and cultural representation at the highest level of leadership. 
So remove those, you know, barriers and that uh, tend to reproduce, you know, the good old boys network and instead, you know, try to create more opportunities for diverse applicants and diverse leaders to emerge. Um, that was that last part was my paraphrase of number three. Um, and so as you, you know, continue down this page, you know, their focus areas, their key strategies for implementing those, those three broad areas, you know, cultivate welcoming environments, facilitate courageous conversations, um, initiate and activate change in, uh, and strategies to allow for greater representation and leadership. So those are the three big, uh, things that the Missouri Methodist church wants to achieve in terms of its anti-racist work. So how are they going to do that? Um, well, first, you know, they want to build awareness around this concept of the beloved community, um, this community of, of people, of all God's people that are all equally beloved simply for being made in the image of God. Um, and to uh, build awareness around that and to equip Methodist Missouri for intergenerational conversations. Um, that I think is key. One highlight or one theme of the report was there's a gap in perceptions of racism and anti-racism between older white people and younger people of color um, and then younger people and especially younger people of color. So if there's this gap here, well, we're going to have to have some intergenerational conversations. Um, number two, build appreciation for the diversity of the conference by sharing black and brown people's stories and encounters with racism, as well as hopes and ideas for combating it. Um, three, assess conference attitudes around bias, culture, race, and privilege to create a baseline for how the conference is doing related to diversity and inclusion. So the three things we wanna do, we wanna cultivate welcoming environments, facilitate courageous conversations, and initiate and activate changes in policies to uh, foster greater representation of diversity in our leadership. Well, you can do that in part through the beloved community, right? You can build awareness around this idea of the beloved community that we're all God's people and then equip people for intergenerational conversations where um, we can build appreciation for diversity. We can encounter black and brown people's stories and experiences. Um, and we can assess where we're currently at so that we have a baseline and we know where we're at so that we can measure improvement down the road. Um, and I think if we do all of that, I mean, you're going to be creating a welcoming environment because you're going to be having these courageous conversations um, and you're going to become maybe more aware of ways that church policies or conference policies um, replicate a leadership that's very male very old, very white, um, and therefore a leadership that maybe is missing some important perspectives. You know, I mean, if you're 70 years old, a white male who has lived in predominantly white communities in Missouri your whole life, um, then you probably aren't going to be able to understand what it's like to be a black woman in St. Louis. And if you don't understand that, you probably aren't going to think racism is a problem because you're not seeing it and you're not hearing the stories. Um, or if you do think racism is a problem, you think it's something, you know, out there. Um, it's something that you see on the news, you know, when uh, someone, you know, uh, is, someone is killed by police and then uh, people get upset and start protesting, you know, that 
And if you have that courageous conversation with a black woman from St. Louis or a black man from Kansas City or uh, where have you, um, you may begin to realize, oh, actually, there are a lot of things that I had no idea were happening, that, you know, a lot of experiences that uh, other people also made in the image of God were experiencing. And I had no idea until I had this courageous conversation and I became more aware of uh, the need to appreciate diversity and to try to bring diverse experiences and perspectives into leadership so that we're not missing or overlooking important perspectives and experiences. Um, so number four, another focus area or key strategy for the, United, the Missouri Methodist Conference, training and accountability. So building a conference-wide training plan for clergy and lay people um, for intercultural competency implicit bias, microaggressions, and cultural blind spots. Um, make diversity an integral part of the Missouri Conference mission, vision, and expectations. And then leadership and recruitment. Develop a process or processes for the recruitment of leaders that demonstrates value on diversity and inclusion. Equity work. Prioritize diversity for conference staff and the organization of conference work. Develop equity plans across conference funding arrangements. So, you know, building a conference-wide training plan in the areas of intercultural competency, implicit bias, microaggressions, cultural blind spots. You know, like I was saying earlier, I have no idea what it's like to be a black man or a black woman or a Hispanic man or a Hispanic woman or Asian man or Asian woman. I have no idea what that's like. I have no idea what their day-to-day lived experiences are like. Um, and so I might say something, do something that... I have no idea is actually what might be called a microaggression or a cultural blind spot where um, I have offended them or I've hurt them in some way and I had no idea. Um, and unless we have training and unless we have cross-cultural intergenerational conversations, we're never going to know. We're never going to work toward or be able to work toward um, more equity, more loving each other. Um, and so I, I really commend uh, the Methodist Church for making this effort. Um, I really commend Bishop Bob Farr for leading this effort. Um, and I want to get into now um, Esau McCauley's book, Leading While Black. Um, this book is really amazing. Uh, even if you know if you take the racial part of it out of it, it's a fascinating discussion of how to interpret the Bible um, because he takes a very, you know, what he calls the uh, black ecclesiastical uh, tradition and he applies that to interpreting the Bible and he explains what he means by that. Um, but it's really fascinating how <laughs> what he calls this uh, black ecclesiastical tradition um, is very similar to other interpretations of the Bible or other ways of interpreting the Bible. Um, because, you know, as he says at one point, you know, we are, the, this tradition that I'm talking about is very socially located. It's socially situated and contextual. Um, in other words, you know, as black Christians, we're not just reading the Bible, we're reading the Bible in light of our experiences as black Christians and our history as black people. Um, and he argues that everyone else does the same thing, 
that but just that this black ecclesiastical tradition is more honest about it and i love that um because it's true every theology has an adjective um you know so what is white supremacy um it's not the ku klux klan it's the saying this is theology when actually what i'm talking about is my white middle class theology right and so um if i you know white supremacy is assuming that white is normal and should be normal and anything deviating from that gets the adjectives <laughs> and so and so i love um reading while black not only because it has some really interesting really thoughtful and thought-provoking interpretations of scripture but kind of on a larger level it i think does a really great job of demonstrating how when any of us read the bible and interpret the bible we are bringing to our reading and interpretation our uh, social background and experiences and our lens through which we view the world you know all theology has an adjective you know there's no such thing as like the the thought the theology or interpretation that uh, all others you know maybe differ from and if they differ then you've got to you know clarify what that type of theology or interpretation is even you know all theology all interpretation has some kind of adjective because it all has a social lens or social influence that we bring to it when we sit down to to talk about it or to do that reading so in the table of contents, Esau McCauley gives us a pretty good um, outline of the types of topics he's going to address. Um, in the first chapter, he um, is basically trying to explain what he means by black ecclesiastical interpretation of scripture and trying to make space for that. And he says a lot of really interesting things about the history of this tradition. And he argues that on the one hand, you have a progressive Christians who view the Bible as actually an impediment uh, to uh, black Christianity because of the history of white slave owners using the Bible to justify slavery. Um, and so coming out of that history and that tradition, you have one uh, group saying, you know, the Bible is kind of an obstacle. We kind of have to put it to the side a little bit um, in order to do our theology and to follow Jesus because um, this text has been used to a process and um, you know if we elevate the Bible too highly then we're almost giving ammunition to that argument um, and then on the opposite side you have the conservative or traditional uh, black church tradition that elevates the Bible very highly you know I mean, think about Baptists and now think about the Black Baptist Church. You know, it's very uh, central. The Bible is very central within that faith community. Um, and what Esau McCauley wants to do in this book is he wants to propose this middle ground. And he argues that this middle ground, this tradition, um, has never gone away. It's, it continues to exist, has always existed and continues to exist. But people aren't publishing it. <laughs> you know, the progressive uh, black Christians are publishing and writing and speaking about, you know, we need to, to rethink our relationship to the Bible in light of the history of its being used to oppress us. And we don't want to give ammunition to that argument by elevating scriptures 
too highly. Um, and then the very conservative traditional black Christian tradition that does elevate the Bible very highly. Um, he says there's a middle ground that it doesn't get published in books and papers and doesn't get spoken about at conferences, but it gets preached from the pulpit every Sunday in thousands of black churches across the United States. And so that's why he calls it the black ecclesiastical tradition, ecclesiastical in the church. Um, black because this is a tradition that he views as specific to the black experience. Um, so in this first chapter, he's describing this and describing this debate and arguing that there's this middle ground that exists. You just don't see it written about or hear it spoken about at conferences and things like that. Um, the second chapter develops uh, a theology of policing based on the New Testament. The third chapter talks about the New Testament and the church's political witness. The fourth chapter talks about the Bible as a whole and the pursuit of justice. Uh, fifth chapter talks about the Bible and black identity. And then the sixth chapter is about the Bible and black anger, um, actually, where he talks about his experiences with racism and the anger that that created within him and how he takes a lot of solace in the Bible and passages where people are very angry <laughs> with the injustice that they're facing or the oppression that they're experiencing. Um, then he has a chapter about um, how the Bible ultimately can and should be interpreted as an anti-slavery document and as something that recognizes the full humanity of black and brown Christians. And then the conclusion is just, you know, kind of sums up his position and, you know, makes an argument for working toward active change. So running through that table of contents should give you kind of a good sense of the book as a whole and, and a flavor of what the book's trying to do. Um, I want to read a few key quotes that I thought you know, really captured what Esau Macaulay was trying to go for. Um, so he writes, I propose that dialogue rooted in core theological principles between the black experience and the Bible has been the model and needs to be carried forward into our day. And so that's where he's saying that this, what he means by read while black is that you are reading the Bible through the lens of the black experience at the same time rooted in core theological principles. Um, and so he then adds, this is not unique to black Christians. Euro-American scholars, ministers, and lay folk have, over the centuries, used their economic, academic, religious, and political dominance to create the illusion that the Bible, read through their experience, is the Bible read correctly. So like I was saying earlier, there's that idea that, well, I'm just reading the Bible. Well, no, I'm a white, straight male, middle class, reading the Bible. That's different than, uh, you know, I'm bringing experience and perspective to my reading. And I need to realize that and acknowledge that. Um, and so Esau Macaulay writes, stated differently, everybody has been reading the Bible from their locations, but we, the black church, are honest about it. <laughs> what makes black interpretation black then are the collective experiences, customs, and habits of black people in this country. So, and he goes on in this book to talk about you know, things like the Exodus narrative. You know, you can't read the Exodus narrative as a black Christian or going back in time as a black slave 
and not conclude. The God of Israel doesn't like slavery. The God of Israel cares about the enslaved and the oppressed, and he wants to deliver them. And you can see, you know, if you read the Bible through that lens, through that experience, you can see why um, black slaves adopted, quote unquote, the slaveholders' religion. Um, because even though these white slave owners were really emphasizing a handful of verses that talk about slaves obeying their masters, um, they saw in the larger story a God who loved them and cared about them and wanted to deliver them. So then Macaulay goes on to talk about the New Testament and a theology of policing, and he talks about the church's uh, witness to politics or political power. You know, a lot of Christians today will cite Romans chapter 13, where Paul is advising the church in Rome to obey the authorities. Um, And they will cite that and say, this is why you don't criticize the government. This is why you don't protest, um, because the Bible says right here to respect authority. Now, I'm not the first to observe this. Others have observed this. But when the people who say that, when their preferred political party is in power, they say that a lot. <laughs> when their preferred political party is not in power, it's like Romans 13 just disappears. And now they're very critical of the government and very opposed to anything the government does or says or wants to do. Um, and so I think that's one area where people like Esau Macaulay and myself and others who have observed that kind of scratch our heads and say, huh. Um, You seem to be reading this from your social location without acknowledging it. (laughs) And and let's acknowledge that and let's think through the scripture in in what may be a more faithful way. So that's what Macaulay does. You know, he um, interprets Romans and other passages passages in the New Testament um, through his experience as a black man, but also through deeply rooted theological principles, beliefs about God and who God is. And um, he argues, I think very persuasively, that uh, in Paul's context, he's not saying, don't ever criticize the government. Um, he's, saying, he's not saying, uh, don't oppose wicked rulers. You know, yes, he says, you know, don't um, submit to the governing authorities. And he does mention wicked rulers. But... That begs the question, well, why are there wicked rulers in the first place? You know, Paul is saying that, you know, obey the authorities because God instituted these authorities. But does that include the wicked rulers? Why are there wicked rulers if God put the authorities in place? Um, and so Macaulay builds from that to argue that the issue is not obeying the authorities. The issue is that the authorities, if they're in, put in place by God, are stewards of what God has appointed to them. And if they're stewards of what God has given them, then they can do a good job, of course, or they could do a bad job. They could be wicked. And so um, this quote really sums up well what Macaulay argues. We are being the Christians God called us to be when we remind the state of the limits of its power. And so, you know, should we violently revolt against the government? No. (laughs) Paul would agree with that. The New Testament, Jesus, of course, would all agree with that. But that does not mean that we must be silent 
in the face of injustice. That does not mean that we tell black and brown people, well, you need to just submit to the authorities and you need to be quiet and patient until you know the white society decides to give you more equality and equity. Um, and so, and, and instead, Macaulay argues, we're being the Christians we're called to be when we remind the state of the limits of its power, when we point out where rulers are being poor stewards of what God has appointed them to rule over, uh, when we point out the injustices and the oppression embedded within our systems and our structures and institutions. And moreover, um, if we do this, we're not just benefiting minorities, we're benefiting white majority. Um, Because, uh, as he points out, Matthew chapter 27 speaks to how a corrupt system can distort the souls of those charged with keeping the system functioning. Because in that chapter, we see the Roman soldiers not just carry out their orders to um, flog and scourge Jesus, but mocking him and adding extra beatings and extra cruelty to it. And so, you know, one thing that's really striking about systemic racism, but that doesn't get discussed very much, is how it affects white people too. Because um, we sometimes, you know, there can be resistance to programs or policies that would benefit everyone because they're perceived as being targeted toward a racial or ethnic minority, toward, you know, them. And there can also be just a psychological toll, an emotional or spiritual toll on a person who is harboring some kind of bias or racism toward other groups. Um, It might just even be implicit bias, this non-conscious association of this person or group with this stereotype. You know, and so Macaulay also adds to his discussion of Romans um, that If you read Romans 13 in light of Romans 9, as well as the wider Old Testament, um, you see many examples of God using humans to take down corrupt rulers or governments. Whether that's in peaceful protest or democratic elections or violent revolution. But at the same time, Macaulay argues Romans 13 should be read as a testimony our inability to discern when God's judgment will arrive. This does not mean that a Christian cannot protest injustice. It means that we cannot claim God's justification for violent retribution. (laughs) Submission to authorities in this case and acquiescence to injustice are two different things. So I think that's really interesting, really powerful because yeah, Romans 13 People point to it and say, well, that's why we shouldn't protest. That's why we shouldn't even really criticize the government. We just need to you know, follow the law and pay our taxes and be good citizens. Um, but Macaulay points out, if you read chapters Romans 13 in light of Romans 9, where Paul describes examples of God using humans to overthrow corrupt governments or unjust or oppressive governments, you, if you read that also in light of the Old Testament as a whole, where God uses humans repeatedly to uh, create change in governments or to overthrow corrupt rulers or wicked rulers, Um, all of a sudden, things, Romans 13 looks a lot different. It looks 
not as a prohibition against protesting injustice, um, but rather as a prohibition against claiming that you're doing it in God's name, <laughs> right? A prohibition against using God to justify a violent revolution. Um, and to me, that makes a lot of sense um, because if you're using God as justification for violence, that almost always uh, ends up being or transforming into a kind of scary fundamentalism, you know, the crusades, the, you know, jihads that we've, you know, observed over the last, the violent jihads, I should say, uh, not the spiritual um, struggles of, you know, faithful Muslims. So Macaulay continues in the rest of the book to describe how black people are in the Bible, right? Um, whether it's um, Jacob embracing his two half-Egyptian, half-Israelite children, equally along his two fully Israelite Jewish children, whether it's you know numerous other examples that he cites, from beginning to end, the Bible is a story of multicultural group of God's people. Um, it's a story in which you can see black Jew Christians throughout the story um, because this Bible, this text, the story occurs in the Middle East, in North Africa. Um, so many of these Christians are not European white, but are black and brown Africans and Middle Easterners. Um, so from the Old Testament all the way back to Jacob um, to the New Testament and the people who converted to Christianity um, and began following Jesus, you, know, you see lots of black identity in the Bible. Um, and he makes that argument. And he then goes on to talk about a multi-ethnic, multicultural vision of the new kingdom. Um, he writes, Jesus' ministry and the kingdom that he embodies involves nothing less than the creation of a new world in which the marginalized are healed, spiritually, economically, and psychologically. And then he goes on to talk about the New Testament authors and how they are convinced that when Jesus came out of the tomb after the resurrection, that was the coronation, if you will, of a new kingdom and a new king in the person of Jesus that includes all people, a multi-ethnic, multicultural kingdom. And it's not that differences are eliminated, it's that each difference, each diverse group and person and culture itself glorifies God. The diversity of cultures and people itself is a testimony to the greatness of God and to the power of his kingdom. I love how he puts it in this quote. The kingdom is incomplete without black and brown persons worshiping alongside white persons as part of one kingdom under the rule of one king. It's just beautiful. It's almost as beautiful as when Macaulay writes in the chapter about black rage and how he takes solace in the Bible. He writes, without the resurrection, forgiveness embedded in the cross is the wistful dream of a pious fool. But I am convinced that the Messiah has defeated death. I can forgive my enemies because I believe the resurrection happened. 
I am convinced the God who had the power to judge me did not. And so you can see, you know, hopefully you can see at this point that Macaulay is himself describing, but also embodying and participating in what he calls this black ecclesiastical tradition um, because he is um, reading the Bible, not only in its ancient context, but through the lens of his experiences and his deep theological beliefs and core beliefs about who God is and about Jesus and the resurrection. Um, And I think he makes a very compelling argument uh, for a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural vision of the kingdom of heaven under the kingship of Jesus. And notice that so much of his interpretation and his thinking is shaped and formed by what we celebrated this Easter weekend, the resurrection. If the resurrection happened, as he believes it did, as I believe it did, then that changes everything. (laughs) That changes absolutely everything. In the New Testament, the authors are trying to rethink their entire Jewish tradition and history in light of the resurrection because if the resurrection happened then that means god isn't just for the jews he's also for the gentiles that means that god isn't just going to deliver the nation of israel and establish it as this political military theocracy superpower but he instead is doing something very different defeating sin and death for all people all races all cultures all ethnicities um now, in an addend- uh, appendix to the book, Macaulay says a couple things that I want to mention here at the end because um, I'm very familiar with the objection, well, you know, we can't read the Bible or interpret the Bible um, through our social lens or through the lens of our experience because what if we get it wrong? <laughs> and so, um, or what if we make our experience, we make our social our social context more authoritative than the Bible. Um, then we're like putting ourselves ahead of God in a sense. Okay. That's that's the objection that I've heard, and that's at least that's how I understand it. Um, well, Macaulay writes in this appendix where he takes a little bit more scholarly approach to, to talking about uh, this black ecclesiastical interpretive tradition. He writes in this appendix, there is a difference between acknowledging the social location of interpretation and letting that location eclipse the text itself. And so right there, and in the passage that follows where he unpacks that, Macaulay is saying, yeah, we need to acknowledge our social location and how we interpret the text. We need to acknowledge that all theology has an adjective, but we also have to be careful of letting our social location and our adjective for our theology eclipse or take over the text itself or the the theology itself. Read one more passage because I think it does a really good job of kind of unpacking that and also summing up his whole uh, argument or description of this black ecclesial interpretation. Um, He says, I suggested that black ecclesial interpretation is clearly socially located. It attempts to make sense of what it means to be black and Christian. When I said it is theological, I meant that it uses theological concepts like the character of God or the imago Dei, the image 
image of God, to argue that the interpretive method used to justify slavery had to be wrong because it violated what could be known of God's character. This led to a third point, namely that the black interpretive tradition was canonical. When faced with difficult passages like 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1-3, Today, black Christians turned to the wider testimony of the scriptures and read individual texts in light of the whole biblical narrative. Okay, so this uh, way of, this description that he gives, I think, goes a long way toward addressing some of those concerns that people might have about acknowledging a social location or context for how we read and interpret the Bible. Um, because Macaulay is careful to say you have to be aware of and on guard of your social perspective or experience or lens eclipsing and taking over the text. Um, you have to guard against that in part by staying rooted in your theological concepts like the character of God, the image of day, and you have and as well as being canonical, looking at the whole of scripture the majority of scripture and i would add to looking at jesus um, i think the red letters do matter more than the black letters i think what jesus said and taught and practiced does matter more than other scriptures and i think everyone agrees with me even the people who say they who don't the people whose heads are exploding right now um because i have yet to ever be greeted with a holy kiss when i walk into a church um, I have yet to hear anyone who opposes same-sex marriage say, well, we also need to follow Leviticus 20, chapter 13, and execute gay people. So I think that we have, um, all of us have an intuition that informs how we view the Bible, how we interpret and apply the Bible, which is that we should interpret the Bible through our understanding of who God is, through our understanding of theological principles like the image of God and also in light of the whole biblical narrative and in light of Jesus. If the Bible from beginning to end, the, if the biblical narrative or story is overall a revelation of God, it's both human and divine because there are human fingerprints and how it was created, human influences, audio, you know, ancient historical social contexts and then there's also these timeless bits of wisdom and principles and illustrations um, and if the entire bible as a whole the narrative as a whole is a revelation of god well then the picture of god we get is of a loving inclusive forgiving merciful god and if jesus is the fullest revelation of god within that story it only makes sense to pay extra special attention to the red letters and to what Jesus said and taught and modeled. And in Jesus' willingness to die on the cross, in his deep trust in God resurrecting him, Jesus not only reconciles us to himself, to God, but he also shows us a better way to live. He shows us the path toward establishing right relationships, justice and righteousness in biblical terms among ourselves and others and our society 
and its structures and systems and institutions. So, books like Reading While Black and efforts like the Missouri Methodist Conference's uh, survey about racism and anti-racism and desire to educate its members and encourage its members to actively dismantle systemic racism, all of that stuff matters a great deal because all of that stuff is following the way of Jesus, the way that Jesus showed us through his life, death, and resurrection. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you had a happy Easter and a wonderful week going forward.